European Heart Journal, Issue at a Glance, Volume 41, Issue 32, Focus Issue, COVID-19, by Editor-in-Chief, Professor Thomas Lucia, read to you by Morgan Bryan. Understanding COVID-19, in the end, it's the endothelium. What else? First, science. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed the world and has refocused science, including cardiovascular, or CV, research. This virus not only affects the throat and lungs, but also profoundly impacts the CV system. First of all, male sex, obesity, hypertension and diabetes, and cardiac conditions at large increase the risk of infection, possibly related to soluble angiotensin-converting enzyme receptor expression, and of an unfavourable disease course. Second, COVID-19 affects the heart, leading to myocarditis, myocardial injury scar formation, and arrhythmias and heart block, as well as blood vessels leading to vascular occlusion due to local thrombus formation or embolism, and eventually cardiac death. The mechanisms involved are the usual suspects, as outlined in the viewpoint. COVID-19 is, in the end, an endothelial disease, by Peter Libby from the Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, USA, and myself, Professor Thomas Lucia. It is well known that the vascular endothelium provides the crucial interface between the circulating blood and tissues and displays remarkable properties that normally maintain homeostasis. This tightly regulated array of functions includes control of hemostasis, fibrinolysis, inflammation, oxidative stress, vascular permeability, and eventually vasomotion and vascular structure. While these functions participate in the moment-to-moment -moment regulation of the circulation and coordinate many host defense mechanisms, they can also contribute to disease when they're usually homeostatic and defensive functions overreach and turn against the host, as in the case with SARS-CoV-2, the virus causing the current pandemic. It produces protein manifestations ranging from head to toe wreaking seemingly indiscriminate havoc on multiple organ systems, including the lungs, heart, brain, kidney, and the vasculature. This viewpoint presents the hypothesis that COVID-19, particularly in the latter complicated stages, represents an endothelial disease. Cytokines, protein pro-inflammatory mediators, are key signals that shift endothelial function from the homeostatic into the defensive mode. The endgame of COVID-19 involves a cytokine storm with positive feedback loops governing cytokine production that overwhelm counter-regulatory mechanisms. This provides a unifying concept of this raging infection and a framework for rational treatment strategies at a time when we possess only a modest evidence base to guide our therapeutic attempts to confront this novel pandemic. Surprisingly, emergency unit visits for acute cardiac conditions have declined markedly. Several reasons have been suggested. First, patients may have been shy of visiting hospitals during the pandemic. Secondly, with life in standstill, plaque ruptures and aortic dissection may have become less likely. And thirdly, the marked reduction in pollution may have had an influence as well. The first hypothesis is supported by the fast-track manuscript COVID-19 kills at home, the close relationship between the epidemic and the increased out-of-hospital cardiac arrests 
by Simone Savastano and colleagues from the Fondazione IRCCS Policlinico San Matteo in Italy. They included all consecutive out-of-hospital cardiac arrests, or OHCA, occurring in the provinces of Lodi, Cremona, Pavia and Mantova in the two months following the first documented case of COVID-19 in Lombardia, with those occurred in the same window in 2019. The cumulative incidence of COVID-19 from February 21st to April 20th, 2020, was 956 COVID-19 per 100,000 inhabitants, and the cumulative incidence of OHCA, 21 per 100,000 inhabitants, with a 52% increase as compared to 2019. A significant correlation was found between the differences in cumulative incidence of OHCA and the cumulative incidence of COVID-19. Thus, the OHCA excess in 2020 is closely correlated to the COVID-19 pandemic. These findings are important to further the understanding of the reduced emergency unit visits and for planning future pandemics, as outlined in the editorial by Hanno Tan from the Academic Medical Center in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. With a prothrombotic state of the endothelium, thromboembolisms should increase during the COVID-19 pandemic. This hypothesis is pursued in the fast track entitled Pulmonary Embolism in COVID-19 Patients, a French multi-center cohort study by Ariel Cohen from the Hôpital Saint-Antoine in Paris, France. In a retrospective multi-center observational study, the authors included consecutive hospitalized patients for COVID-19. Among 1,527 patients, 6.7% of patients had pulmonary embolism confirmed by CT pulmonary angiography, or CTPA. ICU transfer and mechanical ventilation were significantly higher in the PE group. In a univariable analysis, traditional venous thromboembolic risk factors and pulmonary lesion extension in chest tomography were not associated with pulmonary embolism, while patients under anticoagulation prior to hospitalization or introduced during hospitalization had a lower risk of pulmonary embolism with an odds ratio of 0.37. Male gender, prophylactic or therapeutic anticoagulation, C-reactive protein and time from symptom onset to hospitalization were associated with pulmonary embolism. Thus risk factors for pulmonary embolism in COVID-19 do not include traditional thromboembolic risk factors, but rather independent clinical and biological findings at admission. In line with the concept outlined above, inflammation is a major driver in pulmonary embolism in COVID-19, as further discussed in a thoughtful editorial by Adam Torbicki from the Center of Postgraduate Medical Education in Otwock, Poland. Inflammation is also a trigger for atrial fibrillation as it changes the electrical properties of the atrial myocardium and eventually favors tissue fibrosis. Furthermore, inflammation may trigger tissue factor expression in the atrial endothelium and favors thrombus formation. On the other hand, life in standstill may reduce sympathetic drive and hence reduce the likelihood of new onset atrial fibrillation. In their article, New Onset Atrial Fibrillation, Incident Characteristics and Related Events Following a National COVID-19 Lockdown of 5.6 Million People. 
Anders Holt and colleagues from the Copenhagen University Hospital, Herlev and Gentofte, in Hellerup, Denmark, resolve this conundrum. During three weeks of lockdown, weekly incident rates of new-onset AF were 2.3, 1.8 and 1.5 per 1,000 person years, while during the corresponding weeks in 2019, incident rates were 3.5, 3.4 and 3.6 per 1,000 person years. Incident rate ratios comparing the same weeks were 0.66, 0.53 and 0.41. Patients diagnosed during lockdown were younger and had lower CHADS-VASC scores. During the first three weeks of lockdown, 7.8% of patients experienced an ischemic stroke or death within seven days of new-onset atrial fibrillation, compared to 5.6% during the corresponding weeks in 2019, corresponding to an odds ratio of 1.41. Thus, following the national lockdown in Denmark, new-onset atrial fibrillation declined by 47%, while ischemic stroke or death within seven days increased. These complex findings are put into context in an excellent editorial by Karina Blomstrong Lundqvist from the Department of Medical Science in Uppsala, Sweden. Myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, or MINS, is caused by myocardial ischemia due to a supply-demand mismatch or thrombos and is associated with an increased risk of mortality and major CV events or MACE. In their review, Myocardial injury after non-cardiac surgery, diagnosis and management. Philip Devereaux and colleagues from the McMaster's University in Hamilton, Canada, note that the diagnostic criteria for MINS includes elevated post-operative troponin levels with no evidence of non-ischemic etiology during or within 30 days after non-cardiac surgery and without ischemic features such as chest pain or ECG changes. Patients with MINS should receive aspirin and a statin unless contraindicated and a NOAC if not at high bleeding risk. Cardiac catheterization is only recommended for those with recurrent ischemia, heart failure or high risk of non-invasive imaging. Troponin should be measured for the first few days after surgery in patients greater than or equal to 65 years or with atherosclerotic disease to avoid missing MINS and the opportunity for secondary prophylactic measures and follow-up. Finally, this issue is complemented by various discussion forum contributions on this very timely topic. In a contribution entitled, Should Atrial Fibrillation Be Considered a Cardiovascular Risk Factor for a Worse Prognosis in COVID-19 Patients? Fabian Sanchez-Goma from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Valencia in Spain discussed the recent publication Characteristics and Outcomes of Patients Hospitalized for COVID-19 and Cardiac Disease in Northern Italy by Marco Metra and colleagues from Brescia, Italy. Metra et al. respond in kind. In a comment entitled, ACE2 is on the X chromosome, could this explain COVID-19 gender differences? Felix Hernandez from the Universidad Autonoma de Madrid Centro de Biología Molecular Severo Ojoa in Madrid and his colleague Esther Culebras discussed the recent publication entitled Circulating Plasma Concentrations of Angiotensin Converting Enzyme 2 in Men and Women with Heart Failure 
and effects of renin-angiotensin-aldosterone inhibitors by Adrian Voers and colleagues from the University Medical Center in Groningen in the Netherlands. Voers et al. respond in a separate comment. In a contribution entitled Circulating Plasma Angiotensin Converting Enzyme 2 Concentrations in Patients with Kidney Disease, in some Marie Schmidt and colleagues from the Boston University in Massachusetts, USA, also comment on the article by Voers et al. Voers and colleagues respond in a separate message to this piece. Time for the last word from Professor Lucia. This is my last issue at a glance in the European Heart Journal, in my role as Editor-in-Chief. It has been a pleasure and an honour to serve both authors and readers of this fine journal and the European Society of Cardiology over more than a decade. My goal has always been to make it more attractive and informative for clinicians and important and stimulating for scientists worldwide. I hope you've enjoyed it. Needless to say, this was only possible thanks to an amazing team of editors, reviewers, authors and editorial staff. I hope that you enjoy this very last issue under my leadership. The time has come to hand the European Heart Journal over to a new editor-in-chief, Professor Filippo Crea from Rome. I'm certain that Professor Crea will do an excellent job with his new team, retaining some of the experienced editorial staff from Zurich. Thank you for submitting to, reviewing for and reading the European Heart Journal. And goodbye. I'm sure we'll stay in touch.